Michael Weibel, University of Cambridge. Michael, thanks for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today, looking at the post-Brexit options for the UK. We're here to discuss your paper, The UK's Liability for Financial Obligations Arising Out of Its EU Membership. Theresa May has just triggered Article 50. What is the process for determining the UK's financial liability now? That's the big question. We're going to leave the EU. She's just said so. She's triggered Article 50. But how much is it going to cost us? Well, like other aspects of the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, past and future, this is primarily a matter for negotiations between the EU27 and the United Kingdom. That said, the European Union and various individual member states have reiterated on various occasions over the past few months that they will want a settlement of the UK's financial obligations arising out of its more than 45-year membership of the European Union prior to them being prepared to talk about the future trade relationship between the UK and the European Union. And there was a House of Lords report in March this year on Brexit and the EU budget. What did that say? There have been some quite wild assessments of how much it's going to cost us to leave and some retorts so that it shouldn't cost us anything. Yes, so the report is a very useful document because it canvasses the various arguments about this complex questions of the UK's financial obligations. In legal terms, it reaches two key conclusions. The first is that the UK is not liable as a legal matter for financial obligation arising out of its membership in the European Union and that the Court of Justice is unlikely to have jurisdiction over this question. Basically, the assessment by the House of Lords is that we can just leave and it's not necessarily going to cost us anything. That's the legal assessment. The House of Lords is very careful to say that in political and economic terms, that is unlikely to be a very fruitful path for the United Kingdom. But their assessment as a backdrop to these negotiations is that there is no legal liability. Well, the key question for you then, as the author of this paper about our financial obligations arising out of the EU membership, has the House of Lords got it right? Well, in purely legal terms, I think the House of Lords has got it wrong. I would say that the United Kingdom is in principle liable for a share of the EU's budget commitments that have already been made while the United Kingdom was still a member of the European Union. So those budget commitments could last a long time into the future, like environmental improvements? There's a seven-year budget process, and commitments have already been made up to 2020, and it's primarily those commitments that will be the subject of negotiations. Does international law have anything to say on this? What about withdrawal clauses? Because they're key, aren't they, the so-called withdrawal clauses? What do they tell us? Well, so there's a specific withdrawal clause in Article 50, much talked about in the last few months, that sets out the procedure for the UK leaving, or any other member state leaving, the European Union. But crucially, from my point of view, it only deals with that procedure, how to notify what the time periods are two years after notification, for example, unless otherwise agreed, the member state withdrawing ceases to be a member of the European Union. But it does not deal with important substantive matters, such as what happens to pre-existing rights and obligations. And for that, we need to look at general international law, specifically the Vienna Convention 
on the law of treaties that has a provision that deals precisely with this question. Now, the House of Lords concluded that Article 50 displaces this general provision, this default provision in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And I think that conclusion is mistaken. That general provision persists because Article 50 only deals with procedural matters. So we fall back onto international law outside of the EU. So what articles are important for us to consider and why? What are the relevant laws internationally? Article 70 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties that sets out the default rule for withdrawing from treaties. There's two other provisions in the Vienna Convention that also deal with withdrawal. What I think this shows is that Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union is only a partial contracting out of general international law. And most crucially, for purposes of the UK's financial obligations, Article 70, Paragraph 2 of the Vienna Convention says that any right, obligation, or legal situation of the parties created through the execution of the treaty prior to its termination or withdrawal persists. So it preserves these rights and obligations of the parties. That's quite a bombshell because people haven't talked about these international treaties. They're looking precisely at the European Union's own charters and rules. Do you think we need to look more widely then in the future now that we've triggered Brexit? Yes, so I think certainly if one looks at the House of Lords report, it reached the specific conclusion about the relationship between Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union on the one hand and the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. That is part of general international law. And that's also what the media widely reported in this country. I'm pretty confident that elsewhere, international law more generally has been considered in analysing the question of the UK's liability for its financial obligations. How can the Court of Justice of the European Union become involved in this process? What are the court procedures for determining our financial liability? It seems that this is going to be a big sticking point in the two-year negotiations. Yes, so as a matter of principle, and that's what Article 50 itself says, the treaties continue to apply to the member state that has given notice of its intention to withdraw until the critical date, that is when the membership of that state actually ceases in the European Union. And that's prospectively going to be the 29th of March 2019 or an other agreed date between the EU27 and the United Kingdom. Up until that point, the treaty obligations under the European treaties apply to the United Kingdom in full, and so does the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Do you imagine then that we will have to go to the international courts? Well, I think there would first be an attempt if it came to that, and I think both sides have a joint interest in resolving this matter of the UK's financial obligations through negotiations, also given all the uncertainty that surrounds the scope of these financial obligations. I think the principle is quite firmly established, but there is considerable uncertainty about the scope. Now, if for whatever reason the European courts did not resolve this matter or they lacked jurisdiction, there may be other options, such as the International Court of Justice in The Hague. At the moment, that would seem to be an option for the EU27 individually as states. They could initiate legal proceedings there. But again, that's not something that I think they would want to do. They would want to reach a negotiated settlement 
And you seem to be saying, I know you're a lawyer, but within that negotiated settlement, actually the UK does have liability for the next seven years for policies that it's been part of that have been enacted and the cost of those policies. We clearly have a liability, you seem to think. Yes, I do think that the case that may be made by the EU27 that the United Kingdom is liable for financial commitments it has made as an EU member state. That's a strong case. Anything else to add just finally? The House of Lords report got it wrong then, according to your own blog and paper. But what would you do if you were Theresa May and the government? You brought up the issue of negotiation several times, that it's not just a legal process, it's about getting people in the room together and getting their teams and negotiating a settlement. Any intuition as to where we might end up in two years' time? Well, I would hope that there is a settlement of some kind between the two sides. I suspect that it's going to be somewhat less than the 60 billion euros that the European Commission has floated in this respect. But I think if the United Kingdom and its government considers its priorities in these negotiations, it will hopefully realize that the financial aspect of these negotiations are not, in fact, such a high priority. It's not ultimately such a huge sum of money for the United Kingdom. It's about 1.5 billion a year for the UK's membership over the last um, 45 years. So I would hope that there is room for a compromise. That said, if the UK's starting point in these negotiations were to be that there is no liability whatsoever and the UK shows no willingness to move from that starting position in these negotiations, then I suspect that this could well be a stumbling block for the negotiations and the EU27 are very unlikely in these circumstances to be prepared to talk about the future. And that future, of course, is very important to both sides, but especially to the United Kingdom. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us and talking to us today. There's going to be a field day for the lawyers, it seems. Yes, unfortunately, it always is. Michael, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today, looking at the post-Brexit options for the UK and discussing your paper, The UK's Liability for Financial Obligations Arising Out of Its EU Membership. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 